Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time we're going back to cover Angle versus Joe round three. It's Final Resolution 2007. Kush, you were a diehard TNA fan at this point, but could even you have been excited to see Angle versus Joe again so soon? I'm going to be totally honest with you. I'm not sure there's anybody in the world who was more hyped about Angle versus Joe than me the first time. Um, I was not only a gigantic TNA fan, but I was like the kind of guy who would like go to a party and pull out his laptop and be like, yo, check out this match. Like it was a problem. Um, by the time we get here, no, no. Like we've seen two really, really fantastic matches now, but the story beats that are in between are so bad and slow and boring and to finish it with an Iron Man match, no, I wasn't excited for the show one bit. I think the build here was especially wretched. It was also long because there had only been three weeks between the previous pay-per-views, so there were five or six weeks they had to fill here over Christmas time, and it was not good. And I think we both agree that all they had to do was like, all right, they both won once. Now wait six months, wait nine months, wait a year. Like, don't do it the blow off now. Like, just pull them apart, do something else, yeah. come back to it. Yeah, I mean, put the belt on one of them and make the other guy work to get a title shot. There's just an easy way to do this. Stretch this story out. But that is not Vince Russo's specialty. Like, Russo only knows how to book one speed. And, I don't know, by about February, it seems clear he's run out of ideas. Yeah. I mean, the book on TNA, we literally just mentioned this while we were talking off the air, is, like, you can so easily see a brighter future, a a brighter version of what you actually got. They're not far off of an awesome product where everything's right. But the maddening thing is that they're always just right there, and they always make the mistake. And you're right, because after three months now, we can clearly see what Russo's vision is. Like, he's turned everyone on the roster, and it seems like that was the only idea he had, was turn everybody and then, question mark? Make everybody unlikable dickheads. And then start rolling out the props, baby. So, Kurt goes on a rampage after losing to Joe. Um, On the December 14th episode of Impact, he opened the show demanding his rematch. Joe declined because Joe said he wanted a shot at the NWA title. Kurt then proceeded to put Don West in the ankle lock in a fit of rage. Again, two weeks ago, he was like, Joe, let's be friends and we're going to defend each other. And, you know, win, lose or draw. This is our last match. It's all good. And now he's like, I will literally murder any child in this audience in order yeah. to get another match. He put a referee in the ankle lock and then he dragged SoCal Val into the ring and stood on her hair before threatening to break her ankle. What the fuck? Yeah. He's now beating up women. Like, this also, guy, it's like that's fine. Like if you're going to have him do that. Okay. But like, he's a mega heel. Now he is the scummiest man on this roster. Now they go right back to treating him like a baby face. Like that shit yeah. never happened. Jim Cornette says there's a no rematch clause in the contract, but that he could give Kurt a tag match against him next week. 
See, that's interesting because if like if Kurt signed a no rematch clause into the contract, which he said that he did before the second match, that would have been a great excuse just to hold off on this match until later. And then make Kurt win some sort of King of the Rings shit in order to get a shot at Joe or vice versa. Like, what are we doing? This show did a record 1.2 rating. I would attribute, I mean, I think post-pay-per-view bump plus the baseball player angle that they had done at the pay-per-view that got a bunch of mainstream coverage, like got covered by ESPN, Sports Illustrated, CNN, um, got them a ton of mainstream publicity. Yeah, we kind of shit on that, but, like, let's be clear. Like, getting the World Series MVP on not too long after the World Series apparently was a fantastic move because that's probably the biggest thing they've ever done. I have no problem with that involvement. I just thought it was stupid to make make Lance Hoyt be the guy to get involved instead of somebody legitimate. Oh, of course there was. But, again, as we established on the last show, who the fuck else was they supposed to put? Yeah. I mean, they put Kurt is in damn near every segment on these shows anyway. How much fun would it have been for like Kurt to be like, yes, I am a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals. Sure, I will defend their honor. Kurt Angle's a proud son of the Steel City. You know, he's a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. Yeah, he ain't fucking with that shit at all. <laughs> on the December 21st episode of Impact, Kurt and Rhino teamed up against Joe and AJ, and AJ pinned Rhino to get the win. Um, After the match, Kurt put Joe in the ankle lock and demanded he agree to a rematch. That ended inconclusively as the show went off the air. Joe suffered a legitimate knee injury, I think an MCL sprain here, that he had to work through on this show, which is maybe part of the reason this match wasn't as good as the first two. Right. But, I mean, at least uh, that gives him the opportunity to sell it as if the ankle lock had injured him, because that's basically what they do. Yeah. This show dropped down to a 1.05 rating. Can you imagine if you were, like, if you were, like, a like somebody just surfing on ESPN.com or something like that, and you're like, oh, uh, uh, that Cardinals player was in a, oh, there's a new wrestling organization. Ah, fuck it. Let's give it a try. Why not? That sounds kind of fun. And then you turn it on, and the very first thing you see is, like, Kurt Angle stomping on SoCalVal's hair and like, yeah, I see. (laughs) No, thank you. The week after on the December 28th impact, Joe was presented with an award as uh, Mr. TNA 2006. Kurt interrupted and attacked Joe's girlfriend, putting her in the ankle lock. This finally forced Joe to agree to give him a rematch. Although, hilariously, they wouldn't refer to this as Joe's girlfriend. They just kept calling her, like, the 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 woman that accompanied Joe. I wonder if Joe's, like, real-life girlfriend was like, you are not calling that random woman your girlfriend on TV. I'm sorry. You're just not going to do (laughs) that. I I looked it up. Joe, yeah, married his, I think they're still married, but Joe got married, like, summer of 07. So, like, surely he was, you know, dating that woman at this point. But, you know, I don't, she's, I don't think an actress or a wrestler. So you're probably not, you know, having her get beaten up by Kurt Angle is not a good idea. So they need somebody who I guess is comfortable with the physicality. But yeah, maybe there was an issue with like calling this random woman Joe's girlfriend. Hilariously, like woman who accompanied him strongly implies prostitute. Yeah, fucking Joe's apparently the kind of guy who brings a prostitute to the show with him. 
Not the wouldn't be the first wrestler to ever do that. Oh, absolutely it wouldn't. But come on, man. <laughs> like, unfortunately, Joe has not established any sort of relationship with any other human being on the planet because he's yeah. been an untouchable killing machine to this yeah. point. So there's no, no there's no ones to attack for Kurt. Like, there's no there's no buttons to press. So they just have to make some up. This show did a point nine four rating. Yep. Lost 25% of their audience over the course of three weeks. And it never comes back. <laughs> it, it bounces back a little bit the next week. Oh, good. Um, on the January 4th, 2000 episode of Impact, they announced that Joe vs. Zangle would be a 30-minute Iron Man match. Um, also on that night, Angle wrestled Christian that went to a no contest after a bunch of people interfered. How do you feel about yeah they they're doing a lot of these little teases where they're putting Kurt up against like big opponents on TV. Do you think that wets people's appetite that they want to see the real thing on pay-per-view later? Do you think that hurts it when they do it on pay-per-view when it already happened on TV even if it was inconclusive? Well, let's say this because this was the booking template that he used during the Attitude Era, right? Like, every Raw would be like, tonight, Steve Austin versus The Undertaker. And you'd never get that match. Like, you'd get, like, two minutes and then a million people fighting and whatever, right? So, like, it's not, like, unusual to pull that play out of the playbook. And it certainly didn't hurt their pay-per-view sales. But that's because what they did when they had all that schnoz stuff was so fucking entertaining. You didn't really care if they had the match or not. Yeah. This isn't. Uh can we look up what was on the Tokyo Dome that night? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got you. January 4th, 2007. I cannot place where this is in New Japan. This is the very first Wrestle Kingdom. Oh, no shit, is it? Yeah, this is Wrestle Kingdom 1. Of course, there's been, you know, 15 years they've been running the Tokyo Dome on January 4th, but this is the first time it's called Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah, so this is Kajimuto and Masahiro Chono versus Ten Cozy. Uh, nothing really super yeah. notable here, except... So fact, Minoru Suzuki versus Yuji Nagata. A very young Shinsuke Nakamura versus Kawada. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. I thought Team 3D was on this show, but I guess they're not. They were working in. They've been working in Noah. Yeah, they were at. They did hustle this January. That's right. Hustle was the comedy promotion. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Not the best time for New Japan. Yeah. Later on, it'll become so funny that like impacts will always coincide. And, like, now, funnily enough, like, this past year, AEW coincided, like, on the same night as Wrestle Kingdom is another wrestling show. January 4th is just such a magical day. It is. Uh, we had to remember the – we'll cover it at some point. The January 4th that was Hogan's first impact in TNA. The most important one in – the most important night in wrestling history. <laughs> And that they did it on a Monday night to go head-to-head with Raw, and Raw, that was when WWE brought back Bret Hart. Was that 2011? Uh, 2010, January 4th, 2010. 2010. And New Japan had 
Uh, Nakamura versus Takayama. Not a great show, but still, a uh, Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah, still a huge night. Yeah. Also, the night Mick Foley won the world title, January, the finger poke of doom, January 4th, 1999. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. The next week, January 11th, Joe attacked Angle before his scheduled match. Security came out to separate them. Cornette told them, Cornette, Cornette told the security, like, just protect the fans, let Angle and Joe fight. Um, they ended up in a brawl backstage that lasted about 10 minutes, and Cornette announced that the match at final resolution would be a 30-minute Iron Man match. Um, I I think we both are on the record that we don't like Iron Man matches. I'd say in particular, it's a weird stipulation for this one. I think the only way you can spin this is Joe can be like, this means like I get your ass is mine for 30 minutes. It doesn't matter if you get, if I pin you, it doesn't matter if you tap out, I'm going to beat you for 30 minutes straight. I'm pretty sure that I've gone on record as saying that I don't believe there's ever been a good Iron Man match. And I, that's probably a hot take because there are some matches that people universally do like, like the Triple H and Rock one and like the Angle and Lesnar one. OK, whatever. Uh, the question is always, is it better than it would have been if it had just been a 60 minute match? And the answer is always no. Yeah. Every I think the answer is time. no. I just don't know what the Iron Man. Ma- what do we want to claim the Iron Man match adds? Nothing. Like, it removes all drama. You yes. know you're going to be here for that exact amount of time and that nothing will really matter until the last five seconds. Yeah. Like, this match would only really work for me if Joe beat Angle, like, five to nothing. And then it'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs> and they'll ne- it's never, to my knowledge, never been done, and you'd never do it because it would be insane. Right, it would kill the other guy. Like, it'd be a disaster. <laughs> Just imagine, yeah, imagine an Iron Man match where there's no comeback. Because the way these basically always work is the heel gets ahead and the baby face comes back. Yeah, imagine one where there's no comeback. How boring that would be when there's like eight minutes left and it becomes obvious that like, oh, he's not actually coming back here. This is just over. And you just have to keep watching it. Like, yes. why? <laughs> so, uh. Kurt wrestled Matt Bentley on impact and got the win after the Olympic slam and the ankle lock. Joe then did an interview where he said he only agreed not to interfere in angles match that night. Now that the match was over angle was fair game. Kurt came out later in the show to force Christian into a cage to stop him from interfering in the abyss versus Tomco match. He did that because Jim Cornette had told him, like, if he, Cornette told Angle, if Angle helped him out, he could get Angle a shot at the world title. This is such a confusing bunch of shit, isn't it? They're putting Kurt in so many, like, Kurt can't just have his one storyline on a show. Like, he has to have a match, and he has to do his thing with Joe, and then, like, he has to, they also have to throw him in some other story, too. They are just forcing Kurt into every segment. Like, these but, are hour-long shows, and Kurt's getting three segments. But honestly, like, can you really blame him? Because, like, he's obviously moving the ratings he by is. himself. And that might be a directive from Spike. Like, hey, look, like, I want to yeah. see Kurt or Sting on 50% of this show. 
Bronco and Christian attacked Angle, but Sting showed up to make the save. I mean, as much as we're shitting on a lot of this, this one did a 1.13 rating, 1.5 million viewers. It's one of the biggest audiences Impact ever drew. Yeah. I mean, you can't... Listen, at the end of this first three months of this experimental season that we're doing, you have to say that bringing Kurt in has been an unqualified success. They're already losing momentum, but they did their best pay-per-view buy rate of all time, then their second biggest pay-per-view buy rate of all time. They're doing the biggest ratings they've ever done. They've got it in the second hour. Like, it worked. Whatever it is that they paid him, they didn't pay him enough. Yeah. Where it goes from here, notwithstanding, at least for these three months, it was worth it. Um, we've also got a rematch, um, a triple threat for the NWA title, Abyss versus Sting versus Christian. Sting is still trying to reach Abyss. Christian is threatening to reveal his secret past. Um, I think all we've learned so far is that Abyss was in prison. I think that's the extent of what we've learned at this point. Yeah, Christian went to a prison yard and was like, hey, Abyss, doesn't this remind you of home? But that's and then like they do a bunch of like images of like James Mitchell yelling at Abyss in the prison. But that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. So Abyss is starting to distance himself from James Mitchell. But Mitchell has threatened to reveal, you know, Abyss's secret past if he doesn't stay with him. So Abyss attacked Sting after it looked like they were going to become friends, which I'd, I mean, I think if you're going to do that twist, you should probably do it at the pay-per-view, but some other bullshit's going to go down tonight, so I guess not. Yeah, to have Abyss already go from heel to face to heel to face within the course of a month is not a good sign. <laughs> All right, you ready for the lightning round? Yeah. Uh, backstage news. Kurt had a lot of heat. He was apparently being tasked by Dixie Carter with critiquing the other wrestlers' matches. What? Yes. Like, she told him, you need to tell these guys how to have better matches. Tell them you're the greatest wrestler of all time, and they need to listen to you. And Kurt, being a good company man, apparently did just that. That's unbelievable. Yes. Like, Okay, let, let's compare that to Punk in AEW, because Punk was, like, trying to give people advice and nobody listened to him, and apparently he was pretty upset about that. But, but he imagine... got them all Starbucks gift cards. <laughs> but imagine if Tony Khan had been like, hey, these guys all fucking yeah. suck. Punk, go tell them how to work. Yeah. Oh, um... Conan was supposed to have hip surgery, but it didn't happen because they discovered his kidneys were failing. Yeah, it's actually very fortunate that he was going to do this. Yeah, he would have died. Yeah, it turns out that he had had a super horrible like condition, and he desperately needed life saving surgery. Yeah, he needed a kidney transplant. So he comes off the shows very abruptly. According to Figure Four Weekly, TNA actually set aside a million dollars in case WWE answered VKM's challenge. No. No. Reportedly, Dixie Carter believed that WWE would accept it. This kind of feels like bullshit to me. I don't. Come on. I mean, you could believe. I could believe that maybe Dixie was like, well, what if Vince actually accepts it? But then everyone else in the office would have been like, no, he won't. If he did a fist fight Bischoff in an alley by himself, he's not going to answer this one. He actually wanted to do that. 
love the idea they actually escrowed a million dollars for this. Like, where would they have even done it? Like, under what circumstances? Who would have presided over it to determine the witness? Shut fuck off. No. Yeah. Um, Russo and Cornette had started actually working together. Cornette would review the scripts for his segments and pick them apart for what he considered to be holes in logic in them. Apparently not that well, because there's still a lot of, whole lot of holes in logic here. Yeah, let me be perfectly clear. Uh, the James Cornette segments on this show uh, do not in any way have more logic than the other ones. Um, they ran a house show in Lisbon, Portugal, that drew about 5,000 people. Why did not they add? Why did they even tour the uh, United States? Yeah. Like, why did off. TNA ever run shows in America? It this doesn't make like any sense. The only place they didn't draw. Just fucking tour internationally. Who cares? <sighs> All right. So to get into the show, it's Sunday, January the 14th, 2007. We're at the Impact Zone in Orlando, Florida, in front of the same 900 people who go every week. Yeah, you can actually, if you watch a lot of these shows, you can pick out the same people in the front row. I mean, this would have really kicked ass to live in. If you were a fan of this, to live in Orlando and be able to go to these shows for free every single week would have been pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. There was like a bar they would all go to afterwards. Yeah, you actually get to hang out with the wrestlers and become friends with them. That's how Lance Hoyt got popular. He'd just buy beers for people after the show and then they'd cheer for him at the matches. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just... The show does about 35,000 buys. That's down from 45,000 they did the previous year for Christian and Sting against Jeff Jarrett and Monty Brown. Monty Brown is an undeniable draw. Absolutely. I believe that's the only the alpha male. He, I believe it's the only main event he ever had and it's one of their biggest ever, so you got to give it up. I mean, it was also Sting's return, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Sting's <laughs> first match in TNA in, like, two years. No big deal. Yeah. Um, and on commentary, of course, we've got Mike Tanay and Don West. And that will, won't change for a very long time. No, when does that change? When do they get Taz? Hogan. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a bummer. I can't wait to do that season. Well, Taz actually comes in to manage Joe because Joe's going to oh. be Nation of Violence Joe. God. Where they're just going to turn him into fat Taz. Fatter Taz. And it does not work. And so they're like, oh shit, well, we're already paying him like a yearly salary. Let's make him an announcer. In the dark match, Jason Riggs and Johnny Riggs defeated Serotonin. Is it a rib on Serotonin that they bring in increasingly uncredible opponents to beat them in the dark match? Yes, I actually believe that these are two local jobbers who actually get the win. (laughs) Next week, they're going to lose to like two fans they pull out of the crowd. That's fucking rad. I love that. Anybody can beat Serotonin. The week after that, it'll be like Hornswoggle and Little Tokyo. I'm all about that. Let's go. <laughs> oh, and then in, on the pre-show, we're doing pre-shows now. Lance Hoyt beat Chase Stevens. Hell of a way to push Lance Hoyt after all that mainstream exposure he got. Yeah. Well, he's going to get his big match next month. And we'll, we'll get to that next month. 
it seems weird to wait a month to capitalize on it. I don't know if AJ Brzezinski had something else going on or whatever. <laughs> yeah, this is the off season. I don't know what they were doing. But anyway, so he just beats Chase Stevens in two minutes. Okay, cool. <laughs> the opening promo is all about the seven deadly sins, but it plays over clips of Muhammad Ali talking. Yeah, you can, can either go with one thing here or the other, but it can't be both. It doesn't make any sense. Like, if Muhammad Ali had cut an awesome promo about the Seven Deadly Sins, then hell yeah, but that's not what this is. And I like the Ali parts, which were all basically just about, like, being the fucking greatest. I I liked that. Like, for Kurt Joe, fine. Go for that. The Seven Deadly Sins didn't really make any goddamn sense. Nope. Opening match, we've got a last man standing match as Rhino takes on AJ Styles. What Side. do you think about this feud? Because I there, I know how I feel about Rhino, and you guys at home know how I feel about Rhino, so let me remove myself from that for a minute. And how do you feel about your fellow Detroit boy, Rhino? I'm not a big fan. Like, I, I loved Rhino in ECW, and he was also pretty good in WWE, but by this point, who cares about Rhino? Like, what is he bringing to the table? Like, do you think anyone is tuning into these shows to see Rhino? Does he have any particular credibility? Does he have good matches or cut good promos? I mean, in terms of credibility, he was the main event of Bound for Glory two years before this. Oh, my God. A year and a half, that a, actually. That was a dark time. Literally, before they got Christian and Sting and Angle, they were just like, oh, no. The only up-and-coming babyface we have is Rhino. I guess he's got to beat Jerry. Oh, Oh, no. This is under Texas Deathmatch rules, so there's pins and submissions, and then they have 10 seconds to answer the count. I don't really like last-man-standing matches to begin with. I think, yeah, adding in the pinfalls and submissions generally makes it even worse. It's not as bad. It's, at least here you only had a 10-count to get back to your feet. I've seen these things where it's like rest for a minute and then get to your feet within 30 seconds, and it's just interminable. Yeah, I actually like last-man-standing matches. I think it's made for some of the best WWE matches of all time. If only because, like, it gives you an opportunity to actually, like, sell, like, big, huge spots and stuff like that. Like, you think about, like, Triple H versus Jericho, uh, like, Cena versus Umaga, Cena versus uh, Edge. This It was really just a great gimmick for Cena. Triple H H and Orton had a really good last man standing match. It just fits the WWE style. The problem with the Texas Deathmatch rules is the second that pin happens and the match doesn't end, it sucks all the air out of the crowd. Like, all right, well, we pinned him, but it's not over. Okay, <laughs> I guess. Rhino hit a plancha. Only time I've ever seen him do that. He's he, You got to give it up to Rhino that at least he, he's going for it at this point. Like, he knows that he's got an opportunity here. Like, he's trying. Um, AJ gets the first pin after a nice springboard splash, but unfortunately the match continues as Rhino makes it to his feet at eight. Worth mentioning, too, that AJ has now, like, started wearing what uh, would become, like, his heel garb, which is, like, the black pants and the little black yeah. choker. Like, so, like, he's, he's according to him, he's full heel now. Character development. Heel, yeah. AJ does, heel AJ does not show his calves. That's right. Full pants for heel AJ. 
uh, AJ hits an insane front flip plancha down to the floor, crashed and burned here. Jesus, it looks brutal. Killing themselves in front of 900 people. That was his whole career. He spent yeah. 10 years doing that. Back in the ring, Rhino hits a spine buster and he gets the pin. AJ makes it to his feet at the count of eight. You know, I just thought about something. This show might be, hold the record for like the most average, like, falls per match because we had this match and an iron man match in it that's a good point because there's five falls in the iron man match how many are there total here like three or four three or four yeah yeah i think you're right um aj counters a superplex with a sunset flip power bomb he then like discovers the phenomenal forearm years before it would become his finisher it's always kind of tickled me that I think the phenomenal forearm is unquestionably the worst move in AJ's arsenal, and it became his finisher in WWE. I've, I really enjoyed that when he got to WWE, as they like cycled through that, all right, what finishers do you got? He's like, well, I have 50 of them. Which ones do you like? And they're like, oh, well, you can't do the Styles Clash. Somebody here is going <laughs> to <Yeah>. die. <laughs> it's like, what about the Springboard 450? No. What about the... What was it, the spinal tap or the spiral tap? The it was spiral like a, tap, yeah. Like a corkscrew leg drop or something. Yep. And they're like, no. And he's what like... About the, what about the Ushi Garoshi? No, I don't think you can hit that on the big show. Um, I do like a bloody Sunday DDT where I spike them on the top of their head. No, none of that Japan shit. Um, what about where I do a backflip and catch them with a reverse DDT as I'm coming down? No. Uh, I don't know about that. What about just the Pele kick? No, Finn Balor already uh, does that. Mm. What about my springboard clothesline? There we go. I mean, it does look good, but it's not a credible finish at all. Again, like it's not that it's a bad move. It's just unquestionably the worst move he does. He has the awesomest move set. I don't understand how that springboard 450 is in this finisher. I mean, he invents that here in TNA to be his kill shot. When he finally makes it yeah. to the top of the card, he needs a new move that can beat, like, Sting. And that's what he pulls out. Because it's a kill shot. It's the greatest yeah. move ever. And I've never seen him mess it up. It's no. perfect every time. And he I hits mean, him like flush. It feels like he's like killing him with it. It's also crazy that like while he has used the Styles Clash in WWE, I don't think he has ever beaten anyone with it. Whereas it should absolutely be his kill shot. It's so funny, the disparity. Because in Japan, when he does the Styles Clash, oh my God. people quake in fear because yeah. he broke necks with that shit. Yeah, people are will like be crying when they see him hit that move in Japan. And in WWE, it's like just his transition move that gets kicked out of. Yeah, do you remember when we watched the match at Wrestle Kingdom between him and Naito when he does it yes. on the top rope and the fans are screaming? They're like, horrified. no! Yeah. It was like he pulled a blade on him. Yeah. Um, Rhino cuts him off because he tries another springboard and hits a power bomb. AJ hits the Pele kick. Rhino ducks a clothesline. He hits the gore. He hits another gore and he gets the pin. AJ looks like he's going to get to his feet as Rhino is stalking him for another gore. But AJ, like a monster heel, decides to just stay down. I he doesn't even finish. leave the ring. He just like yeah. sits down in the corner like, nah. <laughs> Should have thrown up double birds. This was hilarious. This is a fantastic finish to a last man standing match. Yeah. For the Love heel to just be like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm out. Yeah. 
I'm done with this. <laughs> I'm not letting him beat me up anymore. I'm it's like when him. um when JBL and Cena had that I quit match and like JBL hit quit because Cena was gonna hit him with the giant pipe. Yeah, just like a blood-soaked Cena holding a pipe, and JBL's like, uh, I quit, I quit, I'm I done. quit. <laughs> or when Batista quit when Cena was going to AA him off the car, and then Cena did it anyway. Heal Cena. <laughs> yeah. Um, they go to the announce to desk to run down the card for tonight, and then AJ and Rhino fight back into the arena. Um, I always love, I always love this. I love when we cut away and come back and the guys are still fighting. Yeah. I love the idea that just like, it's chaotic backstage and even the people like presenting the show are like, fuck, what's going on? What? Oh shit. Yeah. This is what like the NWO took advantage of so well. It's just the idea that like the backstage is like a living like biosphere where shit's going on when you're not aware of it. Um, Rhino tries to gore AJ again, but AJ moves and Rhino crashes through a table. That was pretty good. Rhinos are very powerful, but not very smart. I do love the that, like, goring people through the entrance area became, like, a signature thing after he did it to yeah. Jericho in WWE. Just, like, he just said he leans the table up onto the entrance circle so that it's literally propped there, and then he gores through it, but AJ moves. <laughs> He destroyed the classic SmackDown set. Yeah, he did. That's Never probably the greatest moment of his entire career. Yeah. Uh, they do a backstage interview with Jerry Lynn. He complains about being called a pioneer because it implies that he's old. Um, says he might have taught Saban and Daniels everything they know, but he didn't teach them everything he knows. He comes off like such a bitter old asshole here. He's supposed to be the heel here, right? No, he's the baby face. Fuck! Who, why? I just, who are we supposed to like in this company? <clears throat> We're supposed to like Jerry Lynn, because he's like, man, these young kids, they don't, like, no respect anymore, but I'm a legend here. By the way, Jerry Lynn wrestled here, like, a year and a half ago. It's not like he's been put out to pasture and is making a dramatic comeback. Like, he had yeah. the t- he had the exhibition belt in 04. <laughs> he's 43. He's old, but he's not that old. No! Like, Daniels is already, like, 36. <laughs> yeah. Like, his greatest rival is Rob Van Dam, who's, like, in the prime of his career. Yeah, Rob Van Dam's got, like, the world title on the other show at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up, we've got a triple threat for the X Division title. Christopher Daniels defends against Chris Saban and Jerry Lynn. Um, Lynn is knocked to the floor a couple minutes into the match. Um a couple minutes later, he comes in with a missile drop kick on both guys. They all go up to the top rope and, like, slam each other off. It's like a rock bottom, a flat liner, and something else in combo. Um, Daniels hits the BME on Saban, but Lynn breaks up the pin. Um, Lynn does the – what is this called? I, was, I forget what this is called. Oh, which thing is Seamus' Celtic Cross. I don't remember what the real name for this is. Oh, is it the Air Raid Crash? No. Yeah, is that the Air Raid Crash? Or is no, this is the crash? Emerald Flosion. This is the Emerald Flosion. I thought Emerald Flosion was... Yeah, yeah, that's right, this is. Yeah, that's where he uh, tucked it under the, tucked their arm under the... Yeah. yeah. Saban breaks the pin up. Lynn hits the cradle pile driver on Daniels, but he gets rolled up and pinned by Saban. Take that, you bitter old fuck. Yeah. 
And the funny thing is, like, even coming into this, Daniels was being like, a, a, yeah. for some reason, just an angry old asshole. Like all these guys are giant dickheads. There's no baby face here. I, I do want to give a quick shout out. Like this match is only okay, but like shout out to Christopher Daniels for being like literally the greatest triple threat performer yeah. of all time. Like literally, he's why triple threats are a thing. Between his matches with Joe and AJ and the Ring of Honor match with Danielson and Loki, like literally, he's the GOAT. We go backstage where Jeremy Borash interviews Kevin Nash. Are you ready for this? Hell yeah. Tonight is the finals of the PCS between Alex Shelley and Austin Starr. There's going to be judges for the match. Nash reveals that one of the judges is going to be the legend the former Worldwide Wrestling Federation champion, Bob Backlund, who walks into the interview. All right. Now, the reason Bob Backlund's here is because in a series of skits that they did to determine the paparazzi championship series, which included, like, jumping on a pogo stick the longest and limboing the longest. (laughs) And, like, holding hands while you limbo the longest middle school style. So Kevin Nash made a throwaway joke about Bob Backlund. Yeah. And it apparently amused him so much that he got them to bring Bob Backlund in for real because he thought it would be hilarious. Yes, and it is. It is hilarious, but it immediately goes weird. (laughs) Backlund asks, like, how they trained for the match. He asks, did they do their thousand squats per day? Did they do the backland step test. Nash kind of sheepishly says they did pogo and played poker and went out and drank until somebody puked. You can literally see <laughs> Kevin Nash by the end of this segment, regretting his decision to bring in Bob Backlund. Cause he's like trying to yes. And all the stuff Backlund is doing and Backlund just no sells everything he says. Runs him right over. Just like, just like he did when they were wrestling their hash show matches after Nash beat him for the title, and he made Nash, like, do sunset flips. Did he really? Yes. I don't think I Nash, knew that. Nash had talked about this. He said, like, Backlund was calling the matches, and it would just be like, Nash would start his comeback, and Nash, Backlund would be like, okay, I'm going to you know, watch the pile driver, kid. Backlund hit him with a pile driver right in the middle of his comeback. <laughs> or, yeah, he'd call sunset flip, and Nash's like, okay, let's see how this goes. <laughs> Fucking Nash though. said he got through the curtain. Undertaker was standing there waiting for him and was like, if you ever do a sunset flip again, I will kill you myself. <laughs> Undertaker was in the right on that one. He was. Backlund's uh, like, Fucking duck the clothesline springboard moonsault. Come on, big man. Eric Young shows up and tells Backlund he voted for him in 1995. Backlund points out he ran in the year 2000. Like, you you can say what Backlund actually said and did all you want. The problem with Pop Backlund is it doesn't feel like he processes in any way the human experience of having a conversation with another person. Like, somebody will say a thing, and then he'll say a thing. They are not connected in any way, though. And there's like a solid five-second pause. They do a video package recapping the PCS. These segments were so funny. Like, if you've never... unbelievably good. Just clearly just Kevin Nash and these guys just improv 
part of the problem becomes with Nash is that like these segments are so unreal good that they're like, oh shit, we gotta find a way to make these a bigger part of the show. Yeah. But that doesn't really work. That like they're a self-contained thing. Like it doesn't really apply to anything else. No. And so like they they quickly run out of what makes these special. But goddamn, they're so good. Um, we've got Alex Shelley versus Austin Starr. They're tied for first place in the PCS stand-in. So the winner is the winner of the PCS. Um, it's a 10-minute time limit, and if they hit the time limit, the winner will be decided by the judges. They introduce the judges. We've got Bob Backlund. We've got Simoleon Joe. Simoleon Joe, who Nash says that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I broke into the business with him when we were both under masks. <laughs> I can't really describe. Like, he looks like Strong Bad. Yeah, he really does. <laughs> and then the third judge is Big Fat Oily Guy. Who, when they sit the judges down immediately in front of <laughs> Tanae, literally he responds as if someone has thrown rotten garbage in his face. <laughs> yes, Tanae is disgusted. This is the Big Fat Guy in the stripper thong. And, like, I've never actually had to say this before but like big dick johnson is a lot more attractive than this guy that they found for this role. yeah he's a much uglier version of the big fat oily guy yeah i mean i mean big dick johnson like it's just a dude who just happens to be a large dude <laughs> and they put in like bikini briefs and he dances around this is um they clearly <laughs> sought out a gentleman who would be challenging yes. to look at I laughed so hard at both Somalian Joe and Big Fat Oily Guy. I smiled at both of those, but when they called out Bob Backlund and he sat down next to Big Fat Oily Guy and he looked over and he shook his hand like he was fucking Bruno San Martino, (laughs) I lost it. Backlund actually got a really nice ovation here. I appreciated that. Showing respect to the legend. The yeah. problem is they're going to keep Backlund for, like, three more months. They're going to, like, yeah. have him wrestle and shit. That's not a oh, good decision. I love the episode of Impact where he does the steps the entire time the show is going on. For an hour straight. Yeah. Like, this ta- and those tapings, I think, took way longer than the 40 minutes they run on TV. Like, I think those tapings took, like, 90 minutes. And he insisted on actually doing the steps the whole time. Like, they could have just shot, like you know, 10 seconds of him doing steps and just use the same footage over and over, but he actually did it for real. I want to be totally clear about this. We buried Bob Backlund a million times on yeah. this show because as a wrestler, he's unbelievably boring and his run as champion sucked and he was just god-awful. But in terms of cardio, he could probably blow up any human being who ever lived. Yeah, today I bet he's got better wins than most guys in wrestling. And he's went what? 70 years old now yeah when he stepped away for the first time he was like teaching amateur wrestling at like a high yeah. school and literally he would like wrestle the entire team back to back to back to back to oh, back and he whooped their asses yes yeah like no, this i once was... made a joke about that i was like oh what do you think bob Backlund was doing while he was out of wrestling but he was like coaching coaching high school wrestling at a prep school in connecticut and it turned out that's exactly what he was doing of course it was for like eight years and then he just immediately came back to the ring, and there was no ring rust whatsoever because he's in the most unbelievable yeah. shape. He, he comes like, back and they put him in the Royal Rumble for sixty minutes. You feel like his like lungs could like blow like a building over, like it's crazy. Yeah. 
Uh, Nash on commentary claims there were 39,000 people there when he beat Backlund for the title in 1994. Tanae asks, oh, they must have had, Tanae's like, oh yeah, must have had a lot of people in the felt forum that night. You can't prove there weren't. He says the match went an hour. Of course it was eight seconds. Um, Nash That's- says it felt like an hour, and he says he's been trying to convince his wife that eight seconds is an hour for a long time now. Kevin Nash is just – I'm glad he has a podcast now. I'm not, like, the biggest fan of it, but whatever. Like, it, it yeah. is what it is. Because, like, just listening to Kevin Nash talk about things, he's the most charming, funny person I've ever seen, ever, in any context. If you could hang out – I feel like if I could hang out with any wrestler, it would probably be Kevin Nash. I would love to just hang out and shoot the shit and drink some wine with Kevin Nash. And I'm sure it would just be, like, him busting my balls for, like, an hour straight. But I'm fine with that. (laughs) Um. This match was not very good. I mean, no. I mean, these guys are both mega heels. And they're just buying time because they have to go to a draw. The twisted plancha that Star hit was unbelievable. Because, like, he was halfway down before he started spinning. Like, normally when guys do that move, like... They're clearly, like, they half-rotate before they even get up here. He was, like, all the way up in the air and then somehow found a way to spin in midair. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Also do want to note that Alex Shelley looks like an absolute megastar, like, Team B cover model here. Just always want to keep bringing that up because I'm the only one who sees it, apparently. (laughs) With one minute remaining, Shelley hits an awesome springboard DDT. Star manages to lock in a camel clutch with 15 seconds left. Why would you insult the legend Bob Backlund like that? Just looking him dead in the face while he locks in the camel clutch. Shelly manages to hold on and time runs out. Be a shame if they reuse that finish later on for the biggest match of the night. Yeah, funny how that Do you think, like, Angle and Joe were sitting in the back like, motherfuckers? Maybe. Yeah. Um, so we go to the judges. Simoleon Joe rules the match for star. Fat naked oily guy votes for Shelley. Backland comes to the ring and gets on the mic. He starts to reveal his scoring. He says, for conditioning, star gets a 92, Shelley gets a 95. Um, for takedowns, Star gets an 82, Shelly gets a 95. Um, Backlund says something about positioning. Star gets an 82, and quote-unquote, Alex Shelton gets a 75. Yes. Um, the, the next category is, like, whether or not they successfully got a pinfall, which obviously they famously, did not. Famously, neither of them did. <laughs> But he still manages to give them scores of 10 and 9. Yeah. Star gets a 10, Shelly gets a 9, and then they tie 25-25 on something I didn't catch. And then he just leaves. And then he's just, yeah. we're all just like, wait, who won the match? So wait a minute. Apparently it's a tie. Nash tells Borash they're going into a five-minute sudden death overtime. And then Shelly rolls up Star in 30 seconds to get the pin. 
I was actually surprised that Shelly won this match because they've definitely been pushing the shit out of Star, though it makes sense with the post-match angle. Why? Yeah. Star gets on the mic after the match. He says he's tired of all this goofy stuff. He's not here to resurrect Nash's career, he says. Senshi is the only guy he respects, and he tells him to come with him, and Senshi just blows him off. This is supposed to be like a big babyface moment for Senshi, where like the really stoic, angry guy who didn't want to participate in any of the fun reveals that he actually secretly is fun all along. But that only works if it's possible for Senshi to be fun, and it's not. So he doesn't sell it. Um, Star did do a pretty good Senshi impersonation here. Oh, yeah. It's just like, let me say it in a language that you'll understand. Oh, uh, with honor. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> they end up brawling. Backlund puts Star in the crossface chicken wing. Which will result in a, a no. big pay-per-view match for Bob no. Backlund in 2007. Oh, no. We thought it was whack for him to get a big pay-per-view match in 1994. 1994. Yeah. <laughs> 13 years later. Uh, video package for Petey Williams versus James Storm, because that's up next. Um, Storm is very reluctantly managed by Gail Kim. Um she like she is entrapped by him because like as the announcers say we don't have a women's division here in TNA she can't get a job doing anything else but managing him. What a fun. Okay, so <laughs> what a burial of this company. There are two different uh, events on this show that reference the fact that there's no women's division. I do wonder if they've already started kicking around the idea of doing it, or if these are both just Dutch Mantel segments and he's trying to plant the seeds himself. I don't yeah. know. Um, revealing that this company is a sexist hellscape. Oh, yeah, we, don't pay like, we don't pay women wages they can live on, so Gail has no choice but to manage James Storm, even though he's an abusive scumbag. Imagine the idea that, like, you manage a babyface tag team, one of them turns heel and murders the other one. It's like, well, I guess I'm a heel now, I, I guess. It's that or I'm going to be waiting tables. Jesus Christ. Make, probably make more money waiting tables. Oh, selling sunglasses at the Sunglasses Hub, which is what Taylor Wilde winds up doing later on. Yeah, I just the tragedy, like, Gail Kim hated working for WWE, had hated. no interest in going back, but she had to because TNA literally could not pay her enough money for her to live on. Even though she was literally drawing the biggest ratings on the yes. fucking show. It was just flagrant pay discrimination, like straight up sexism. And like, sure, somebody could say, oh, you need to negotiate harder. Like, I don't. Why are they paying P.D. Williams more than they're paying Gail Kim? Especially when the owner of the company is a woman. Let's just yeah. be clear about that. You can't even... Not great, Dixie. Fucking horrible. Uh, this was a very boring match. I don't oh, yeah, understand. Sucks. Why are they pushing P.D. Williams? Well, here's the thing, too. is like James Storm, who is now newly turned heel, and there's a million people who have just turned heel, like the whole fucking yeah. roster did. But James Storm does manage to stand out. He's got his awesome music. Like, he looks like a scummy dickhead. Yeah. He beats the shit out of Petey Williams in this match. Like, he hits every move in his arsenal. It's only six minutes. He just yeah. jobs Petey out. 
He gets the win after rolling PD up and grabbing the ropes. Um, and Storm attacks him after the match. He Gail has like decorative handcuffs hanging from her belt loop. Um, Storm grabs them from her and handcuffs Williams to the ropes. He gets the beer bottle, but Gail stops him. Storm goozles her. He goes to hit her with the beer bottle, but she kicks him in the junk and then beats on him, which the crowd goes wild for. She shows more babyface fire in this yes. 10 seconds than the entire rest of the roster does. And like, if you, I don't know if you saw her shoes. So she has these like platform shoes on, and as she's beating the shit out of James Storm, literally they're like going sideways because they're so floppy and high up, and she's still whooping his ass. So dangerous. That is so like I never wear heels around a wrestling ring. It just seems like you're begging to roll your ankle. Yeah, I was terrified she was gonna like snap her ankle, but no, she beats his fucking ass. It's amazing. <laughs> She grabs the beer bottle, and then who shows up but Jacqueline yes. out of nowhere. She makes the save, and holy shit, she and Storm hit the death sentence on Gale. This is the best segment on this entire show. Just kicked ass. Jackie's back. Storm looks like this incredible slimy piece of shit. Like, you want to watch this man die. But him and Jackie are an incredible team together. Whose idea do we think it was to bring in Jackie? Um, Had she been here before? I can't remember. I mean, I can believe Russo was a fan. He wrote for her back in the Attitude Era. I also you know there's some rumors about her and Jeff Jarrett maybe having had a thing back in the day. It's possible, like... What it probably is, is, like, he's the Tennessee Cowboy and she's fucking Miss Tennessee. Like, it just makes sense. I'm sure, like, whether it was Cornette or Russo or Jarrett, somebody was just like, why don't we just get fucking Jackie? It just makes sense. And it does. The yeah, second that she and, she and Storm stand next to each other, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Perfect. Starting to build their women's division. I'm not sure if Jack. I mean, I know Jackie has some matches in it, but she's definitely not a big part of it, which is weird, actually, now that I think about it. She mostly just manages. And then VKM come out. First thing, why the fuck does VKM's music start with a woman making a 911 call? Help, they're in the house. I don't know. And then they have this weird entrance where they're in pods that spin around. Like, this is the only entrance in TNA that has, like, a prop to the entrance. They have to, like, build this set piece just for VKM. Where, like, it turns around and they step out of the pod. Neither of those things have anything to do with this gimmick. Yeah. Um, in the last few weeks, they've done the thing where they showed up at a WWE house show in Knoxville. They challenged Shawn Michaels to come meet them at the Alamo. Um, yeah, they're still doing this. So the at the previous show that we covered, like, Road Dog was like, fuck all this stupid, goofy shit we're doing. Like, this is serious. Yeah. We challenge you to a $1 million match. And if you don't show up, you're a bunch of pussies. Yeah. And they went back to doing the goofy shit. Yep. And then here they come out and declare themselves the victors. Yeah, they declare victory. The greatest victories, the greatest the greatest battles are won without a shot being fired. And in a truly bizarre moment, Road Dog's like, hey, Hunter, uh, 
I know you got. He must have just like blown his quad just, or something. He like tore that. his quad. Yeah, he tore his quad like the week before this at New Year's Revolution. And he's just like nobody ever likes to hey, hear about sorry, another man. soldier. It's another soldier going down. Sorry about that, bud. Why would you throw that in here? It's you're in the middle of a diatribe about how because he's a pussy he himself. wants a job in the future. These yeah. gutless pieces of shit. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. They lack the courage of their convictions. Like, they want to be these edgelords who are going to shoot on people. Like, when Shane Douglas did this, Shane Douglas actually burned every bridge he had in wrestling. And now he's like a waiter at the Olive Garden. Whereas these guys pulled their punches, and they both still get to work in wrestling. Yeah. That's the way it goes. It's funny how that works. And Um, so, like, they literally are just like, well, that's the end of this feud. Uh, We're blowing it off. We won. We're the greatest. All right, well... Moving he on. Rips, on, rips on the Trump versus Rosie O'Donnell skit that WWE had just done. That that was, the I think, the first time we heard TNA chants at a WWE show. Here's the thing. Now that they're not directing their ire directly at Vince and DX and all this shit, and they're just poking fun in yes. general at the terrible segments WWE is doing, he's totally right about that. Rip oh. on those all you want. <laughs> This is like the maybe the worst WWE ever was. Yeah. Like 06, 07, this is some dire stuff. If you just wanted to have Road Dog come out and do the equivalent of Tony Schiavone reading off the results, but instead he just comes out and it's just like, so today, uh, this week on Raw, they did a dumbass segment where yeah. Rosie O'Donnell wrestled Donald Trump. What a bunch of like, garbage. Um, it would be like when Cornette did those shoot promos back yeah. in the Monday Night Wars. There's room for that, because WWE does suck, and this audience does hate it. Yes. And then, in an inexplicable twist, Christy Hemi comes out. Now. Yeah. There's a couple different ways we have to approach this. First, let's approach it from the perspective of what they intended it to be. Okay. In the moment... Christy Hemi is here to play, like, an annoying straw feminist, I think. I'm not sure if we're supposed to feel any sympathy towards her at all, but the crowd absolutely doesn't, so let's just say that we're not supposed to. Yeah, she comes out and she's like, but what about women? Yeah, he's like, you always talk about all the members of DX. Why don't you ever talk about China? Is it because she's a woman? Which, first of all, is an incredible point. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) China was left out of DX for years and years and years to the point where it was shocking that they included her in the Hall of Fame induction because, I I mean, Steve Austin confronted Triple H about it and he gave a terrible non-answer. Yeah, because the only real answer is because because my wife doesn't want her in. That's it. Yes. She brings up Lita being forced out of WWE and all the other women who have been discriminated against. Um, she brings up that there's no women's division in TNA, even though all any of them want to do is wrestle, but they have to be managers yeah. and ring announcers instead. She doesn't say one thing here that's not true. Oh, she absolutely blasts TNA with 1000% accuracy here. Uh, the crowd starts chanting, we want wrestling. She screams, I want it too, which I felt like was a pretty good comeback. Yeah. And Okay, Road- so, yeah, Road Dog is, like, sympathetic to her. 
Yeah, he's like, look, it's, yeah, you know, I agree. Like, uh, I don't remember what he says, but he, yeah, he's sympathetic to the points she's making. Yeah, he's just like, there's room in wrestling for men and women. Absolutely, you guys yeah. should have a division, sure. Then Billy Gunn grabs the mic and calls Christy a slut. Yeah, he's like, I'm one of those men you're talking about, and there's only two things women are good for. And he goes to say, suck it. And Road Dog's like, no, 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 let's not get fired. So what we have here is feminist ally Road Dog, yeah, and monster ma- ma- misogynist Billy Gunn, and just fundamentally, it's all wrong. Because yeah. don't you believe that Billy Gunn is the one of those two people who isn't a massive misogynist? If it's one yeah. of the yeah, Billy always seemed like kind of a nice guy, and like famously, him and China were really good friends in WWE, like on screen and presumably off. I was waiting for him to be like, yeah, that's a good point. Why don't we talk about China? She was my best friend. Yeah. Like, those two were linked all the way through China's entire run. And you can absolutely believe that Road Dog is a dirty, shit-ass misogynist. Oh, he... Road Dog is an awful person. That's like everything... Every time you ever see a quote of his, it's just like, I don't know why they're pushing Becky Lynch so much. Yeah, fuck that guy. But anyway, so Billy says girls are only good for two things, and he tells her to suck it. She slaps him, and Dog restrains him. What a bizarre and terrible segment. Yeah. She says women are only good for two things, their bodies and putting men like you in their fucking place. And then she slaps the shit out of him. I gotta tell you, I was big into Christy Hemme here. What a fucking baby face. Yeah. This is like the the best feminist promo anyone's ever been allowed to cut. And it's only because, once again, Jim Cornette, I'm assuming, thought that a thing that was actually super cool and right was heel shit. This segment also hits very different here in the year 2023 where, yeah. I mean, I guess we don't know for a fact that Christy Hemi is the woman who was victimized by Vince McMahon, who was forced to perform oral sex on her to keep her job, but it's pretty clear she was, right? Oh, of course. And, like, of the many women who are all mentioned, like, there are a lot of women who were like, oh, there were women wrestlers at the time who, like, this was happening to, and the only one who actually explicitly gets named is her. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's because she's given permission for her name to be used because she's talked about it before or whether they just decided to out her in particular. I don't know. But like this happened to her for certain. And so literally the performance she gives during the course of this promo is like a little unhinged emotionally. And at the time, I just thought she was doing like some really bad overreacting. And now I do wonder if she might have genuinely been like having an emotional response to doing this segment. Because she probably Probably. was. I would have. Yeah. Yeah. Like, when all you've ever wanted is to be part of the wrestling business, and, like, you've literally had to, like, dodge dicks in order to do so this entire time, just to get to TNA where they force you to ring announce because they won't even let women wrestle there. it, It is emotional. Ooh. I can't wait for you to see where this is going. Oh, no. It's not going to be good. (laughs) Just know Uh, that in my heart, 
Christy Hemney's the top baby face in this company now. Jeremy Borash is backstage with Team 3D. Bubba talks about wanting to win the NWA tag title. They're the only tag belts they haven't held. This has been a weird feud with LAX. Um, uh, Spike, Brother Runt, uh, showed up as a drunk mall Santa. Yeah, it was what well, that was on the Christmas impact, right? Yeah. So like so like he shows up to be Santa and at first he's, he's drunk just, and stinky. Yeah, he's just drunk and wandering around. And LAX just come out and kill him. <laughs> they hate Christmas, they're Grinches. Sure. And then Team 3D run out and they're like, Hey, you can't beat up our drunk little brother. <laughs> Only we can do that. But then they make a point of Bubba being like, Hey, Spike, be honest with me. Are you drunk? Are, are you drinking again? <laughs> Come on, little buddy. You can tell me. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, this match. It's LAX versus Team 3D for the tag titles. Man, the ability of Team 3D to just ruin everything. Like... You can put the hottest act in wrestling with them, and it is stone cold at this point. It happens twice. First with LAX, and then with the Motor City Machine Guns. Like, they just absorb momentum and just stop it. (laughs) Team 3D are the only act I've ever seen that are, like, walking spoilers. Because you can tell within 30 seconds of any of their matches whether they're winning or not. Because if they are, they're bumping, and if they're not, they're not. Bubba looks like such a piece of shit here. Okay, we got to talk about what these people look like. Okay, like, if you don't know what Team 3D looked like during this era... It's bad. I don't know why, but they've just let themselves go, man. I <laughs> Bubba's, Bubba's got to weigh 350? He's easily gained 50 maybe? pounds since he was last on WWE television. Like, yeah, like he was a big guy when he was in WWE, but here he's enormous. Like, I don't know how tall he is, but he's like he could be he might be 380 pounds here. He's so fat. He's bigger than Abyss. Yeah, like he just and he's wearing like he's he's not like leaning into it. He's just wearing like his same Bubba shit. And, like, awful dad jeans. Jeans and a t-shirt he's wrestling in here. He looks like garbage. Bubba, who you know from his radio show, like, loves to rip on these indie guys who don't look like wrestlers. Well, Bubba looks like a dude you see sitting on a bar stool eating a bucket of fried chicken is what he looks like. Literally, like... Mick Foley does not used to look like, like a professional athlete. Mick Foley used to like saying that Bubba Ray was like a Cactus Jack ripoff, which he probably was. But if he is, then this is his mankind wearing sweatpants in a blue T-shirt on Raw era. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's so broken down, he can't do anything anymore. And meanwhile, Devon, and look, I'm going to put up air quotes here because I'm going to say something potentially <laughs> slanderous. Devon's on so many steroids. <laughs> And he's clearly not working out. <laughs> yeah, like, he looks like he hasn't hit the gym in months. Like, I've never seen a man so this puffy. big, but with no definition before. 
really taken the Triple H like mid two thousands puff to the extreme. Every time he flexes, his muscles are huge, but they're just like bubbles. It's yeah. wild. And they they move it like a fraction of the speed that they used to because they're so fucking big now. <laughs> they these two have some matches in Japan. They have a match. <laughs> Against Toriyano and Toji Makabe, which is, I think, the worst match ever presented on a major show ever. Like, there's These a moment guys. they go for the Wazop headbutt, and they're like not even halfway across the ring, and Devon jumps so short that he bounces and then hits him. <laughs> At least he hit him. It just a fucking horrible. It's crazy that five years after this, Bubba is going to lose, like, a hundred pounds. Like, find his best character and have the best run of his career as Bully Ray. Bully Ray was incredible. And I hate that because it prolonged his career and now he's still around today. And he's such a piece of shit. I'm so miserable. and validated him, which I hate. Yes, like, he actually drew a dime for the first time in his whole career, so now he could actually, like, talk down to everybody. Yeah. Just horrible. Anyway, Team 3D hit the 3D on Homicide, but drunk-ass brother Runt shows up in his Santa outfit, and he hits a splash to get them disqualified. I actually kind of like this end of this match. Like, it's it pisses all over the match, but fuck this match. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. But, like... He, like, does a splash, but he just keeps doing splashes. He's just like, and another one, and another one, and another one. And, like, they're, like, but he's so drunk that he's, like, literally, like, falling over. So it's not hurting Homicide, and everyone's just looking at him. Like, Bubba's in the ring, and Hernandez in the ring, and Homicide's, like, looking up at Runt, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Drunk, stinky little Spike Dudley. The ref lets him get, like, three splashes in before he calls the match. Like, oh, like, come on, man. Can you just go away? Like, come on. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Okay. As a time check, we're an hour and 55 minutes into the show at this point. Yep. And we've still got the 30-minute Iron Man match and the triple threat left. Uh, they're going to be a little rushed for time here. Yes, they are, which you will find... Well, they can't cut any time off of the 30-minute Iron Man match. So guess what's coming up short? Yeah, I mean, that's the... I do kind of wonder if the reason the Iron Man match didn't go on last is because they can't cut... They can't cut time from that. That probably makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. But that doesn't stop them from doing, like, another two promos before the fucking matches start. Yeah, they do. Joe does a really intense interview where he promises to break Kurt tonight. This was really good. Yeah. He's like, now you've made it personal. You attacked the prostitute I brought to the show. (laughs) You know how much money he had to pay her? I had to pay double. (laughs) (laughs) You know that's in the rules. No putting her in the ankle, ah. There's like one town somewhere in Orlando where it's just like, hey, 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 I don't let my girls go to wrestling shows anymore. They get their ankles snapped. Yeah, you know he owed Charles Wright a lot of money after that. Jesus Christ. (laughs) And then they do a video package. Again, if we're short on time, maybe we could cut the video package. It's not very good and it's not necessary. 
30-minute Iron Man match, Joe versus Angle. The winner is going to be the number one contender for the NWA world title. Um, very little happens in the first 10 minutes here. Very little happens in the first 30 minutes. <laughs> um, 10 minutes in, Joe throws Angle to the floor. He hits a suicide dive. They go back in the ring. Joe hits a power slam. Um, Kurt with a big German suplex. Joe sets up for the muscle buster. Kurt slips out of it, but Joe gets him the coquina clutch. Kurt taps out to avoid being choked out with 17 minutes to go. Joe takes a 1-0 lead. I maintain that if this match had just ended with Joe winning 1-0... There's nothing wrong with this match. It, it shouldn't have been an Iron Man match, but whatever, whatever, perfectly fine. I thought Tanae and West did a good job on commentary explaining like why Kurt tapped out so quickly that like, he, if he gets choked out and he ends up unconscious here, like he's gonna lose the match. Whereas like he has no choice but to just tap out. It's just. It just rubs me the wrong way because it makes this feel like it makes it feel like a sparring session that they're tapping out so fast. Absolutely. Like, I I get what they're going for with it. It's just kind of like. All right, especially literally you built Joe as this unpinnable, unbeatable, unstoppable monster. He loses like three fucking times in this match. Here's the thing. There's five falls in this match, and they're all in the last 15 minutes. We do a fall every three minutes from here on out. It just becomes a joke. And you have to do that in an Iron Man match, which is why you don't make this an Iron Man match. No. No. Uh, A couple minutes later, Kurt gets Joe in the ankle lock, and Joe taps out. It's one-to-one with 14 minutes to go. Of course, Joe is also working this with a busted-up knee. Which I didn't know, and I couldn't tell, honestly. No, he really does a great job. Like He does all the normal Joe stuff. He does the suicide dive. He does the pop-up in Zaguri. He does the muscle buster. He must have gotten that injury and been like a fucking course. It's the it's the month yeah. I gotta do an Iron Man match. Um, Kurt tries an Olympic slam. I think Joe was supposed to do the arm drag counter here, but it doesn't work out. So Kurt just kind of drops him. Yep. Kurt gets Joe in the ankle lock again. Joe taps again. Kurt's up two to one with eleven minutes left. Fuck me. Yeah. That's a bummer. And we could just and we could just do the last 10 minutes here is like Joe desperately trying to come back and Kurt fighting him off. But no. See, like if we could rebook this and try our best to make it work. What if like Kurt did it like what Brock did to him? Like he just immediately goes and gets a chair and just like wears out Joe. Smashes him with the chair, pins him, pins him twice. And, he's and then it's just playing one. keep away because Joe's going to yeah. murder him. And then, like, yeah. Joe catches him a couple times, but, like, it's just not enough. Yeah, and time runs out, sure. I think that's, that's fine. Because that's how they protected Angle in that match, because they knew they couldn't get out of it. That match kind of worked. Because then you actually are into the drama of it. Because then it's a question of, like, can you get two pins in an hour against the biggest beast there is? 
instead of just being like, well, let's just wait till the end because there's obviously going to be a pin in, in the last five seconds. Joe goes for the muscle buster. Kurt slips out. He hits the Olympic slam. Joe gets his shoulder up. Kurt drops the straps. He puts on the ankle lock. There's eight minutes to go. Joe rolls through to escape. Joe finally hits the muscle buster on the third try. He gets the pin. Two to two with under eight minutes to go. Yep. A lot of falls they're doing in a 30-minute match here. Yep. Kurt gets the ankle lock. Joe rolls through again. Kurt tries an axe handle. Joe catches him out of the air, but Kurt rolls into a victory roll, and he goes up three to two with five minutes to go. Uh. Joe starts throwing everything he's got at him. Can't keep him down. Inseguri, muscle buster. Looks like it's going to get the pin, but Kurt gets his foot on the ropes to break it. That's with 90 seconds left. Um, Watching Joe, live in that moment, I knew Joe wasn't going to win this match, yeah, and I like threw something at the screen. I was like, are you fucking serious? Joe goes for the Coquina clutch, but Kurt blocks it. Joe settles for putting Kurt in the ankle lock with 30 seconds left. Kurt manages to hold out, and he taps out like right after the time expires. Kurt wins three to two. He's the number one contender. That was a bummer. It's just, you obviously have to get out of this with Joe becoming a star. Like, that's, otherwise, why are you doing it? And now that this storyline has been blown off, literally at the end, Joe just rolls out, and they're just like, all right, now let's move on to the next match. Like, it's over. It's it's done. Yeah. And Joe just, Joe gets nothing out of this. He gets nothing. No, he got his win over Kurt, but like, I just, I don't, that's not what you remember. Kurt beat him a yeah, bunch of this, times. They did this John Cena feud style, where like the person yeah. who didn't need the first win gets the first win. And because so, the first win's what matters, and the last yeah. win's what matters, and Kurt gets both. They sandwich it with a Joe win that nobody's going to remember. Yeah. Maybe if Joe wins both of the next two, it works, but instead. Yeah. Joe, it looks like Joe got a fluke win. And then later in the year, obviously, we'll get to it, but obviously Joe does not get his wins or win the belts or any of the stuff he's supposed to do. So at this point, we're two and a half hours in. Uh, they are playing with fire here in terms of fitness main event in. Like, I've heard Bruce Pritchard say when he was with WWE, they would always time... They would time their pay-per-views out to like two hours and 45 minutes because they always wanted to make sure they had plenty of time before they were left. They never wanted to bump up against running out of time. And also they would cut matches earlier on in the show so that the main yes. event still had time usually. Like yeah. there are times. You never want to cut, yeah, cut your main event down. Yeah, that's why they would just like have matches on the bubble and be like, whoops, sorry, you're not going on. Sorry, we got to yeah. make sure we got 20 minutes for Hunter. But – in this case, yeah, to cut down the main event is just a weird thing to do, especially when a lot of matches got a lot of time on this show. Yeah, that whole paparazzi production segment was well over 20 minutes of the show. They could have made it a five-minute time limit, and that would have hurt nothing about the match. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah, the paparazzi production thing got as much time as the main event did all in. 
LAX and Team 3D could have gone two minutes instead of ten, and it would have made no difference. Would have been great if Drunk Brother Run to just stumble that during the entrances. Hell yeah, and this immediately attacked LAX. Yeah. And once again, we do a backstage promo where Borash interviews Sting, and then James Mitchell and Abyss show up and talk some shit. To, like, do we have to do shit talking this late in the show? Can't we just let these guys fight now? I mean, they, they kind of have to do this just because the story that they're telling is so fucking weird and confusing that, yes. like, what they're about to do needs to be set up or it won't make any sense. It already kind of doesn't, but it needs some context. And then they do the video package for the main event again because they Why? have to explain all this shit. It's just... It's so stupid. Again, this main event's going to get 13 minutes. And it's a triple threat match, so that it goes Elim- fast. An elimination triple threat match. Yes. And shockingly, I didn't actually feel like this felt all that rushed. I thought no. they did a pretty good job setting this up. By the end of it, I think it was actually pretty good. Like they do. Yeah. A, I don't know that this match needed a ton more time than it got, even though it's kind of sucks for Abyss. Yeah, it's just it's a there's no downtime, which I'm Correct. perfectly good with. I mean, 13 minutes is a very long time if you don't spend a bunch of time like laying on the mat and headlocks. Yeah, thank goodness actually, because like Sting main events can have like five minutes of random shit that you don't need in them. So actually, this kind of cut all the bullshit out. Yeah. All right, it's main event time. Triple threat match for the NWA World Title. Abyss defends against Christian and Sting. Tomko is banned from ringside and its elimination rules. And there's a cage at ringside to lock Tomko in. Yeah, he's not just banned from ringside. He's in a shark cage. Shark cage! Tomko comes out with Christian and Cornette tells him he has to get in the cage. And he does it! I mean, nice of him to agree to the stipulation, I guess. Yeah. Being a good guy. Seems mean that they never put like chairs in the cage. Like if he's got to no, be in there, does he have the to stand time. up the whole time? Yeah, that sucks. Sting is at second. Abyss is out last with James Mitchell. Bell rings with about 15 minutes left in the show. Um, West correctly points out that it makes sense to just stay out of the ring and let your opponents fight. Like, I feel like if you did this kind of match and it was real, like, it would just be a stalemate. Nobody would fight each other, because what's the incentive to? Right. Yeah. Like, are you a fan of elimination multi-man matches? It's different when it's, like, a four-way, I feel like, because then you, like, whittle down, and then you get a couple different kinds of match along the way, right? Like you start with like this chaotic four way, then it's like a like a more dynamic triple threat, then it gets down to a singles match. I'm okay with that, especially if you give them like 30 minutes. In this case, it just it always winds up being like, all right, we're gonna job somebody out early and then have the singles match we actually wanted to have. Because <laughs> it really feels like Abyss is only here to be like a distraction, and he's the champion. But, like, we're trying to get to Cage versus Sting. Get out of the way. Why did they put the belt on Abyss? I don't know why Sting can't still have it here. No, I have no idea. I don't know how that makes sense. Like, I assumed that, like, Sting lost the belt because they, you know, were out of dates on his contract or something. They clearly weren't. He's on just about every impact. 
And there's nothing different here that – literally, if Sting has the belt, everything about this storyline is exactly the same. It doesn't make any difference. And, in fact, it builds better into the storyline because then, like, the double turns he keeps doing to Abyss in these matches can be chalked up to, oh, the evil belt makes me yeah, do it. Yeah, the belt's corrupted him. <laughs> yeah. Instead, he's just, like, fucking – he keeps being like, hey, Abyss, you good? Cool. Scorpion death lie. Uh, they go out to the floor. Abyss slams Sting into the cage, drops Christian on the railing, and then Christian slams Sting on the concrete floor. They go back to the ring. Abyss hits Christian with the shock treatment. Christian hits a drop kick on Abyss's knee. He goes for the frog splash, but Abyss googles <coughs> him and choke slams him. Um, Sting tries to get back in the ring. Abyss punches him off the apron. Sting gets too close to Tomko in the cage, and Tomko chokes Sting out from inside the cage. Yep. It's a pretty useless cage with spaces in the bars so big Tomko can just reach out of it and choke Sting. I mean, he's still in there. Yeah, it's Sting's true. own fault for getting too close. In the ring, Abyss hits the black hole slam, but Rudy Charles is outside dealing with Tomko. Sting pops back into the ring. He hits Abyss with the Scorpion Death Drop and pins him. Abyss is out. We're down to Sting versus Christian. Uh, Do you feel like this made Abyss look like a big jabroni? I mean, it definitely made him look like he was just a completely secondary. There's nothing about this storyline that makes Abyss seem like he's a star at all. So if that was their attempt, it doesn't work. So they like basically push him out of the way so he can just be like storyline fodder for Sting and Christian, who were like the real main event, which I guess is what they wanted all along. So that's fine. Um, Abyss goozles Sting, but he refuses to choke slam him. Christian hits a missile drop kick. Um, Abyss leaves. Sting makes a comeback. He hits a press slam and a stinger splash. He goes for another stinger splash, but Christian dodges. They struggle on the top rope. Sting hits a superplex. Abyss comes back. Sting puts him in the scorpion. Um, uh, Mitchell lets Tomko out of the cage. Tomko... Hits a torture rack slam. Christian makes the cover for a close two count. Sting clotheslines Tomko over the top, and Abyss throws him into the cage. Christian tries to hit Sting with the belt. Sting ducks it. Sting hits Christian with the unprettier, but Christian kicks out. This is quite a lot of stuff we're stuffing into the final two minutes of this match. It really is. But it kind of makes it be like Sting's most like electric match in so long because they're like he's just like it's like an X division match but with Sting in it. Yeah. They do a ref bump. Mitchell hits Sting with his cane to no effect. Sting puts Mitchell in the Scorpion. Abyss knocks him out with a chain shot. Christian hits the unprettier and gets the one two three to win the title. I mean. This was pretty good. Like I said, I, it didn't really feel that rushed, even though they were short on time, because they just, the pace was so fast. I 
I found that I didn't really have a problem with it. I guess I probably should have. But honestly, I felt like this match was sort of a best-case scenario of getting to where they were trying to go. So, I mean, I guess it's fine. What didn't make for an amazing main event, but it, it got us out. What, Christian's got the belt. That's where we're trying to get to. Abyss and Sting can go off and do their other bullshit. Cool. We're there. Fine. Christian and Tomko celebrate. So do Mitchell and Abyss. I guess all they cared about was keeping Sting from winning the title. How did you feel about... Okay. How did you feel about choosing to do Abyss's turn in this way? Because they'd already basically done this exact same thing on TV. Before he goes to, like, he goes to hit Christian, but then he swerves and hits Sting instead. That's the Vince Russo special, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, again, like, it felt like they had already done the conclusion to this story and they just did it again on the pay-per-view for whatever reason. Yep. So now he's formally decided to stay evil. But again, he's not evil because you know that James Mitchell is blackmailing him. But now we're just going to yeah. pretend like he went back to being a bad guy again. And we get the notoriously terrible... Sting versus Abyss feud after this. Two matches that are going to just be phenomenal to talk about. The some of the worst stuff of all time. It this feud will cause the beginning of the fire Russo chance, which would fire That's... which would follow Russo so heavily that when he later was consulting with them, Dixie had to pretend like he wasn't because people yes. would get so upset if they knew. And Dixie had to publicly deny that Russo was the ones who booked this shit, even though he was. Yeah, they. She went. She publicly pinned it on Dutch Mantel instead, and Dutch was like, "Wasn't me." Yeah, Dutch also publicly called her out for being a fucking liar and defending her boy Vince Russo at all costs. And she keeps Dutch in the company after that. Yeah, whatever. They need yeah, him. She doesn't care. Somebody's got to book the mid-card. <laughs> Next time, we'll cover Against All Odds 2007, in which Kurt gets his NWA title shot against Christian Cage. Things aren't getting any better, are they? I feel like I'm Virgil, and we're descending into the depths of hell together, Steve. And you started out in such a positive, happy Virgil, Ted DiBiase's bodyguard? No, Virgil from Dante's Inferno, (laughs) damn it. (laughs) Yes, I'm Big Dick Virgil in a tuxedo shirt, and I'm guiding you into the mouth of hell. Eat some meat sauce and some breadsticks. And we are going to just take a trip down into the Drek, and I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> Next month, we've also got a prison yard match between Sting and Abyss. A prison yard is where the people responsible for booking this shit belong. That's right. We also have a, a Motor City chain match between AJ and Rhino. And, sure a li- and a little Italy street fight between LAX and Team 3D. A lot of location-based fighting in the next one. Indeed. And a base brawl match between Lance Hoyt and Dale Torborg. And a tuxedo match between Christy Hemme and Big Fat Oily Guy. Exactly what we've always wanted to see. What a show. This really quickly turned from being like a cutting-edge 
modern wrestling promotion to WCW circa 2000. It's just so obvious that from where, where we started was somebody else's booking. And now that yeah. we're three months in, you can absolutely see like the veil of Russo descend. Yeah. It was Jeff Jarrett and Dutch Mantel booking things before, and it wasn't perfect, but it made sense. Like they told a long term story with Sting chasing Jeff Jarrett and beating him to win the title, and it drew huge. And now here we are. They've thrown everything away. I just. I didn't really remember that Vince Russo was such like the star of this season. But in a way, he is. He's the antagonist, right? Like, they have Kurt, they have Joe, they have AJ. They're positioned so perfectly in this moment. The most eyes that were ever on TNA are on it right here. And then Vince Russo comes and just smears shit all over the screen. Yeah. 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 <sighs> What a bummer. Must have been really bad. Well, I mean, I'm sure you watching this at the time, like, you thought they were going all the way. And then, oh boy, did you get that pulled out from under you? I don't, it's not until a couple months down the line that I think it fully sank into me that, like, oh no. Oh no, it's not, like, the momentum's gone. It, it didn't work. It's bad. Oh my God. But it, it was very hard to rationalize at the time. Like I'm literally like waving the flag in the air. And then I turn back behind me and like, Oh, the TNA army's gone. Cause this place sucks now and nobody likes it anymore. Oh no. Yeah. It was rough. I continued following this company ardently for another eight years after this. So I can't, Oh. That's me, baby. That's just on me. Imagine. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, my memory of like when and why I stopped watching this is a little fuzzy, but it just, it just so quickly becomes clear. They don't have it. They don't get it. What's the direct, I mean, if you would ask Vince Russo, where is any of this going? Like, what are we building towards? I don't feel like he would have had a coherent answer. No, the year before, the answer was absolutely clear. Eventually, yeah. Samoa Joe will beat Jeff Jarrett for the belt. That is the end game. We will get there. It will happen. Now, who are we even pushing? Like, we're, there's nowhere we're trying to get. We're just going week to week. And it's just, I hate that. I hate it so much. I need a vision in the future, a place we're going. And there just isn't one. <sighs> So yeah, love all that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time. Hey.